This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... It's an attack on people who are already living in the anxiety of being separated from their family members and their loved ones. It's an attack on their dignity, it's an attack on their privacy. We have at least four attacks per week on healthcare. These attacks are high revenue, low risk, because there's a huge impunity. The ICRC is not any humanitarian organization. They are the guardian of the Geneva Conventions. So an attack on them is something special. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. As you heard from our introduction there, a fascinating topic we're going to look at and maybe a surprising one for some listeners out there. It's about humanitarian organizations, the people who are there to help in the worst possible situations of war or natural disaster and their vulnerability to cyber attack. This threat is not imminent. It is upon us. Cyber attacks against TV stations, food and fuel suppliers, hospitals, water systems. These hacks have been happening for a long time. Ransomware. Why would anybody attack an aid agency? Who would do such a thing? Well, we saw in the news recently that one of our most famous, biggest, best-loved aid agencies on the planet, the International Committee of the Red Cross, was the victim of a cyber attack just in the last few weeks. We're going to talk about that and the whole issue of the protection of aid agencies in this program. To join me, I've got Massimo Morelli, who is Head of Data Protection at the International Committee of the Red Cross, Stéphane Duguin of Geneva's Cyber Peace Institute, which works to support aid agencies in this business of protecting themselves against cyber attack, and as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. Massimo, I'm going to come to you first, just for listeners who might not be familiar with this story. What happened? What happened? Um, what happened is a couple of weeks ago uh, in January, uh, we identified that there had been an intrusion in a part of our systems and the part of the system uh, in particular of the central tracing agency, which is an important and a fundamental part actually of the uh, work of the International Committee of the Red Cross, but of the whole Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. It's that part of the movement that is there to restore links between family members that are separated because of armed conflicts, other situations of violence, and other humanitarian emergencies. The Red Cross gets hacked and half a million are affected. According to a news release made by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is called ICRC for short on Wednesday, a cyber attack targeting the Red Cross Red Crescent data affected over 515,000 vulnerable people. And now they this attack- intrusion was detected. There is uh, currently uh, an investigation ongoing in exactly the circumstances, how it happened. And what we know is that what was possible was access to the personal data of over 515,000 people, mostly beneficiaries of restoring family links activities that are generally vulnerable people in humanitarian emergencies and that therefore have already specific protection concerns from our side. Over half a million people, vulnerable people. Stefan, I find that really shocking, but I also am really curious because when I think of cyber attacks, my mind immediately goes to an attack on the military, 
or an attack on the banking system or perhaps on a hostile government's key infrastructure, but an aid agency? Are you surprised? Sadly not, uh, because it's, it's not so well known that uh, the humanitarian sector, if we look you know, beyond the ICRC, so humanitarian sector at large, raise a good 30 billion uh, US dollar annually in donations, in funds. And if it's not so well known by the wider public, it's very well known by criminals. And this goes hand uh, in hand with the reality that is quite dire for this sector, where only one in 10 NGOs train their staff regularly on cybersecurity, when three out of four do not monitor the network, and four out of five do not even have a cybersecurity plan. And it's a question of resources. It's a question of talent attraction. It's a question of turnover of staff. It's a question of format of donation, that when they go to the human sector, it's about their mission. Because attacking humanitarian sector is not something virtual. It's not machines attacking machines. It's attacking uh, water sanitation. It's attacking food security. It's attacking healthcare. And uh, sadly enough, uh, before this uh, attack on the ICRC, attacks were happening, are happening, not making the headlines. Uh, if you compare what happened to the colonial pipeline in the US that led to $2 million of a payment of a ransom, just some months before, an NGO called Roots of Peace Providing food in Afghanistan lost 1.3 millions. Did you hear about this story? I'm, I'm not sure. Actually, no. That's the thing. These these things don't necessarily get on the radar. Danny, I saw you had your hand up and I wanted to come to you. You know, maybe we shouldn't actually be surprised. I mean, there was a, a big cyber attack on the United Nations in Geneva, in Vienna, just a couple of years ago. The UN was not nearly as open as the ICRC, which has been very clear about what actually happened. Anyway, Danny, you come in. You want to well, say I, I, I want to come back to Imogen's being shocked uh, because I think it's natural that you'd be shocked about a humanitarian organization having a cyber attack, but the attack on the ICRC is very shocking because the ICRC is not any humanitarian organization. They are the guardian of the Geneva Conventions. They are really the people who look after international humanitarian law. So an attack on them is something special. But on the other hand, We've seen violations of international humanitarian law by attacks on schools, attacks on hospitals, even attacks on delegates. So in a sense, the sanctity of the ICRC has already been violated in many different ways. Cyber crimes aren't just committed by rogue hackers looking to steal your credit card numbers or personal information. There's a growing concern over cyber attacks carried out by nation states. Sometimes Massimo, I know that you obviously... There are elements of this attack you don't necessarily want to say everything about, but you have been very open. Three separate statements, I think, from the ICRC saying what we know. Now, Stefan did mention ransom, but the ICRC said you, you have not received a ransom demand for this information. That's correct. As of today, there's still been no request for ransom. There are no indication about possible exploitation of this data, or there's always lots of allegations about the fact that it may be sold on uh, the dark web, but after verification, these were not confirmed. So no, at present, we have no ransom request or any request of that sort. You had to take your Restoring Family Links site, which helps families separated by war. You had to take that offline. Have you been able to restore that? 
So we're in the process of doing that. And uh, for people that are following this kind of uh, situation closely, it'll be easy to appreciate the complexity of putting back this information in, in the systems. First of all, finding another tool that can run and making sure that the data has not been compromised and making sure that uh, once put back online, it won't be hacked again. So, you know, there's a number of due diligence procedures that we have to put in place. So it's, uh, it's going to be... Uh, coming up pretty soon, but at the same time, it's not up yet. No matter the reason someone goes missing, the families back home have a right to know their fate, and they deserve assistance while they wait. This is precisely why the International Committee of the Red Cross has devoted itself to creating programs and services to help these families in need. This is really probably one of the most tragic things that I would like to really underline. It was been mentioned earlier, uh, Stefan mentioned that an attack on an organization is not just an attack on an organization, it's an attack on the infrastructure, it's an attack on the programs they run. In this particular case, and in the case of the kind of data that we handle, it's not an attack on the ICRC that we're talking about here. It's not even an attack on the movement of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent that was processing the data through the solution. It's really an attack on the people. It's an attack on people who are already living in the anxiety of being separated from their family members and their loved ones. It's an attack on their dignity. It's an attack on their privacy. It's an attack on their capacity to, to cope and handle uh, these complex situations. Now, this is really the key message that I would like to pass by. Every day, thanks to the Restoring Family Links activities, 12 people are reunited in the world. That's a lot if we look at the large scale and the, the impact on the life of each and every one of these people. And that the kind of services had to be suspended. It had to be suspended and it's, it's a blow for these people. Danny, I saw yeah, your hand yeah, Two up. questions to Massimo. First of all, do you have any idea of who did this? And But secondly, why would someone do this? If there's no ransom being asked, what is behind it? We do not know. Either who did it or why they did it? We don't know. Stefan, you got your hand up and um, I did actually want to come to you because we heard from Massimo the, the measures that they're putting in place to get that Restoring Family Link site up again to protect everything. The ICRC is a big organisation. You help smaller aid agencies and NGOs. This must be very, very difficult. They must be very vulnerable. Indeed, and um, to come back to the question before coming to yours, uh, I will not comment on the attack on ICRC. It's complicated enough, and uh, I know what it is, you know, to have to, to, to manage with this kind of crisis without also starting making scenarios and assumptions. But what is uh, a commonality in all cyber attacks on vulnerable communities is that not only you're a victim, but on top of that, you need to be in capacity at the moment of the attack to imagine who is attacking you. Criminal groups, States, states working for criminal groups, criminal groups that find like a gold mine and realize suddenly it's too big for them. And as if on top of everything, you need to imagine all of that for your response is very stressful and very complicated to manage. I just wanted to, to stress this. When it comes to small organizations, the situation is quite complicated in the sense that investment in cybersecurity is not in the culture. Uh, the capacity to attract talent, cybersecurity talent is problematic because this talent costs a lot and in a market that is very, very on tension. So what we did put in place is a program for free. So we are an NGO and we provide support for free to NGOs in humanitarian sector for them to be more resilient. And our objective is to have 100 NGOs serviced by the end of 2022 and 1,000 by the end of 2025. Because we really believe that there's something that can be 
across these NGOs, across these sectors, that everyone can learn to be more resilient. Massimo, I see you wanted to respond to that. Thank you. Yes, no, and also in the, in relation to the, the the type of entities who might be out there and interested and interested. Of course, we're looking at the different possible scenarios from the uh, initial analysis. Colleagues have been working around the clock to be able to not only restore the services but also to try and understand exactly the dynamics of the uh, the different operations. What we announced or mentioned already in our early statements is that from initial analysis, we're being told by our technical experts that. Uh, there's definitely a highly sophisticated operation and capacity behind this. Now, from that, we're, of course, uh, not speculating, but it is that type of operation. In relation to the other element that was being raised, the cost, the investment, and the, uh, the capacity, it's important to underline that the investment is important not only to prevent, to anticipate, to, to, to respond, or to deal with a particular situation, but also to detect it. Uh, it is thanks to very significant investments, and actually that we could detect that something was uh, was happening that was uh, abnormal. And for what we know, there could be many other incidents that are happening and are going undetected in uh, in the world. When you think of how cyber attacks affect you, you probably imagine your Instagram being hacked or your details stolen. But they can be a whole lot worse. Uh, heating, our cooling, our electricity, uh, our economy uh, is at stake. Stefan, you wanted to come in there. I mean, it strikes me that, again, this is a very big organization, Massimo said, it's quite a lot invested, and it looks like a very sophisticated attack. So again, I'm wondering, is one of the protections to almost raise the profile of what humanitarian organizations do and say, come on, guys, you know, this is not the body you want to be attacking? Or is that just naive innocence on my part? Uh, yeah, let's look at healthcare for a second. Uh, peak of the pandemic, 2020, one attack per day on healthcare. And at the same time, criminal groups saying more or less publicly, we will never attack healthcare. It's beyond, you know, all reach, doesn't make any sense. To date, you can find this on uh, the cyber incident tracer that we developed for the purpose. We have at least four attacks per week on healthcare. Just an example, you know, the theory of ethics versus the reality of attacks. The issue is that these attacks are high revenue, low risk, because there's a huge impunity. And as long as we don't manage this, it's going to be complicated. I want just to come back to what Massimo was saying in terms of detection. Detection is key. We detected in December a campaign of attack specifically against NGOs. And thanks to the Cyber Peace Builders program, we could inform the beneficiaries. None of them, absolutely none of them, knew that these attacks was ongoing and they could be targeted. That is really worrying, isn't it, Danny? Because again, as we said at the start of the program, these are the organizations that very vulnerable people turn to for help. My uh, two questions to Massimo. The first, the Swiss government is the depository of the Geneva Conventions. Have the ICRC had help from the Swiss government or other uh, national governments? And secondly, have you seen in the field any consequences from the hacking? On the first one, uh, of course, there has been a lot of uh, a lot of support from a number of governments, and definitely also from Switzerland as uh, also the, the the host of the ACRC. In fact, the support that we have received in terms of uh, sympathy and also um, offers of help have been also almost uh, overwhelming from 
governments, from uh, donors, from uh, other humanitarian organizations, from a, a number of the tech sector. Bonsoir et bienvenue dans ce 1930. Le CICR est touché au cœur de son action humanitaire par une attaque informatique. Les pirates ont volé les données de plus de 500 000 personnes. It has probably linked also with the, the shock that we we mentioned earlier. It really moved an enormous amount of support that was really heartwarming and that's that's for sure not in question and in terms of impact we haven't actually seen yet any particular impact on this we are obviously reaching 515,000 people is a major endeavor and we're, it's one that we are embarking on together with the national societies that collected this data in the first place. So also we're talking not necessarily about people that are easily reachable, remote communities, and not necessarily connected. So it's, it's an exercise where on the one hand we are reaching out to people as part of transparency, information, trust, but also because people are the first who know what their vulnerabilities are and how perhaps to protect themselves. And that's part of the logic of data protection provisions around data breach notifications. Um, we're also looking at what specific protection concerns may arise, but we haven't actually had any concrete element or indication of uh, individual concerns, which doesn't mean that, uh, that it's all fine, of course. It just means that uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Stefan, It strikes me, I mean, I could ask all of you this, Massimo mentioned trust there, that the key casualty, if an organization like the ICRC, and in fact, two years ago, UN Human Rights uh, revealed a, a pretty serious breach, that people might become fearful of sharing the information that they actually need to share to get help or to find a, a missing loved one. Well, it's very, very true. And that's one of the key issues here. It's not only the attack is putting life in danger now, but on top of that, it undermines the whole aid system because the trust upon which this system is, is holding, uh, trust that takes decades to, uh, to build, can be undermined with, uh, with an attack. And that's really something that uh, is specifically problematic in the context of attacks against humanitarian, also because of the funding uh, and grant system to this sector. The United Nations was the target of a hacking operation that included complex cyber attacks on its human rights offices in Geneva and Vienna. The attacks reportedly began in July 2019, with hackers compromising dozens of UN servers. When an NGO is attacked, and they have this, uh, as Massim was mentioning, this obligation by uh, compliance, data protection, to inform their stakeholders, including the donors. What do you think a donor is going to do when they've been uh, contacted that uh, your banking details, your bank account has been, you know, leaked? And uh, but tr trust us, we are going to do better. Massimo, I saw you had your hand up. I mean, I was thinking more of the, the, the people who turn to you for help rather than the the donors, because it's a bit it's a bit different NGO and ICRC. But anyway. You wanted to comment there. No, definitely. I mean, I think the question of trust is the key in this discussion. Uh, trust involves the capacity and, and it's actually the key for the organization to have access to conflict areas. It needs to be trusted by parties to a conflict. It needs to be trusted that the organization will do what it says it does, that it's neutral, impartial, independent, that some of the findings are confidential and that its mandate is exclusively humanitarian and its activities are exclusively humanitarian. And so 
that its presence in a particular area is exclusively humanitarian and will not be used or exploited to gather information that can be used for other purposes. It needs the trust of people who need to know that their information will be safeguarded. And I think there, the combination of things that are required in order to achieve and maintain the trust is really a, a complex one. And it starts from, of course, the organization upholding the highest standards. And of course, uh, we need to check uh, and do our own uh, due diligence to make sure that there were no uh, responsibilities. And we will definitely look into this. We need to check that uh, the nature of the operation, and we're looking at that, we need to also be transparent about what happened in all possible respects, about everything that happened and accountable for what happened. We need also everybody to step up and to say, this cannot happen because there just needs to be a consensus that things are wrong. There is a line between what you can do and what you can't do. And yes, it will happen. It will happen again, potentially. But the fact that there is consensus about the fact that this is wrong, it cannot happen, is a very, very important thing. There's no gray zone here, and there shouldn't be. The Central Tracing Agency of the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, traces the missing and helps detainees and civilians caught in conflict or disaster restore contact with their relatives. Danny, did you want to comment on that? Yes, I wanted to say something about the sanctity of humanitarianism. Stefan used the uh, term about banks, but certainly when we talk about humanitarian, when we talk about the ICRC, we're talking about a certain level of morality. Uh, but I, with my American accent, after January 6th, what is the sanctity of the capital of the United States? So in a sense, the humanitarian organizations, including the Red Cross, become just like anyone else who can be cyber attacked. Just as the delegates are attacked, schools are attacked, hospitals are attacked, that level has already been passed. Well, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask, because getting on for, my goodness, 20 years ago, when I, I was very first starting in Geneva, we had um, the attack on the UN in Baghdad and the attack on the ICRC in Baghdad. And somebody, an aid worker, said to me then, somebody just doesn't want us working. And that this was a concerted effort to make aid agencies inoperable. And I'm just wondering, is this what's behind? Is this what aid agencies have to look forward to now in the cyber world? Or is it, Stefan, as you said, is it much more likely to be all about money? No, sorry, I, I was not clear because that's the example at the time. It's not, there's nothing to prove or to say it's mostly about money. The intent is uh, financial. Oh, it's an intent that is geopolitical. No military value. Increasingly, cyber attacks are becoming more physical and more dangerous. Now the first ever criminal case has opened in Germany after a patient died during a cyber attack on a hospital. If you look at a, a humanitarian organization, an aid organization, uh, there's a wealth when it comes to data that they hold that can be very interesting for criminals, but also the sensitivity of the data, the area of the world in which these organizations are operating, can make them very interesting targets by state actors. And when you saw very recently what happened in the Pegasus context, uh, the kind of targets that were in the line in order to be hit by this very sophisticated malware, you know, to transform their phone into spy capabilities, a lot of them, a lot of them, were working in the humanitarian sector. So not at all. I would not say that uh, the, the criminal groups 
are the key threats to humanitarian sector. This is really to be demonstrated. Who wants to come in there? I find this interpretation, it's, it's quite depressing. We like to think, even journalists like me who've been around the block a good few times, we do still like to think that the humanitarian organizations are, well, if not protected, at least respected. Different, different from other organizations. Yes, no, I think it's uh, it, it's going to be uh, now there are many streams that will follow from, from this incident. I think it was important for us to be very transparent, very direct and immediately after the events because there's nothing we have seen before that in prior to regulatory obligations to disclose information, there was almost a sense that being breached was something to be ashamed of or to, to have to hide somehow. And that is obviously wrong, uh, particularly in our case. In our case, we need to be extremely vocal. Not saying something, not saying that something happened and not saying that it's wrong is, in, is letting it happen. And there has to be a big statement about the fact that this is not going to happen. And from the demonstrations of solidarity that I mentioned, the uh, I don't think that it'll be so, maybe I'm overly optimistic and naive, but I don't think that it'll be so difficult to have a statement that some things cannot happen without going into the details of, is it lawful, is it unlawful, without going into the politics of which forum over another forum to say certain things. But uh, around the basics, there are people out there that rely on humanitarian organizations to uh, to survive on their most basic needs. And if we want this to take place and to carry on happening, we just need to make sure that the conditions are there for, for this to, to carry on. Stefan, two years ago when the UN, this quite big hack on Geneva and, and Vienna, um, the UN was very, very, very quiet. It took a while for us all to find out that that had happened. The ICRC has been incredibly open. Do you view this as helpful in showing people, look, this is a risk, you do need to be much more aware. And also, as Massimo said, this had kind of an outpouring of support for the ICRC that your average person in the street is more aware and thinking what we just said, this is wrong, this shouldn't happen. No, this is the, this is the right approach, clearly, because at the end of the day, when there's uh, this kind of attacks, what we are all hoping for is accountability. Who is accountable in the context of the attack? And Massimo mentioned something very important, that when, they, when you're a victim of cyber attack, there's a tendency to feel shame and this problematic of being re-victimized because you're going to speak. The whole community needs to make sure that if an entity is speaking out, this entity is protected because that's what this is the basis you know, to protect everyone. It's been called the Ocean's Eleven of cybercrime. Hackers in Russia, China, all over Europe, coming together to hack 100 banks in 30 countries. The criminals, for more than a decade now, are putting their brain together to attack half of the world. So why can't we put our capacity all together when someone is attacked to offer aid and to help and then to know better? This is, this is the only path to accountability. Trying to hide everything will not... Uh, leaders for sure anywhere. So it's quite a, it's quite strong statement and a, a very impressive position has been taken by ICRC in this context. Okay, well, as ever, we could talk about this till late this evening, but we're running out of time. I'm going to give one last question to each of you. Danny, you first. What are your feelings having heard this conversation? Are you concerned that, as ever, with, with new technology, we're playing catch-up to the dark side of it. 
Well, I think a threshold has been crossed, but I do remember when Cornelio Somarugo was president of the Red Cross and delegates came back in boxes and coffins because they had been killed. And there was a threshold that was very difficult to accept. There is a moral element to the ICRC. And here, another threshold has been crossed. You were shocked, Imogen. I'm from the Bronx. Perhaps I was less shocked. Stefan, my last question to you, because you do support and advise NGOs and smaller aid agencies about their cybersecurity. Three key things they need to do. So the first one is to accept that they can be targets. Strangely enough, a lot of NGOs we discuss with, they still consider now, you know what, why attacking me? I mean, there's other organizations in the world to, why me? So going beyond the why me. The second is to be prepared because the attack is not a maybe, it's a certainty. They are going to be attacked. And somebody, and I see NGOs that totally are attacked. The, the, the criminals don't even know that they're attacking an NGO. They're just attacking everyone. It's like good old, you know, advertisement online. You send one million advertisements and you hope someone is going to click. Exactly the same model. So this is going to happen. They need to be ready. And it's uh, the point that was raised before by, uh, by Massimo. Uh, do not hesitate to speak out, to be the voice of... Uh, we just recently published a blog uh, about exactly NGOs that spoke and could help the wider community. So that would be my free uh, advices. Massimo Morelli of the ICRC, final word to you then. Your message to the people who took this information, what's your message to them? But it's a difficult one. I mean, obviously we have in our line of work an approach that is of neutrality, impartiality, independent and access. and. It's one of communication with all stakeholders. And we definitely also would want to communicate with anybody who is out there that has that information and that needs to understand that that information is not data. It's not an organization. It's not news titles. It's actually people. And it's people like the ones they live with. It's people who are vulnerable. And we just want to make sure that nothing is done that could harm them. Well, I think we will all second that sentiment. That brings us to the end of this episode of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Massimo Morelli, Stefan Duga, and analyst Daniel Warner, and to all of you for listening. If you've got any questions about what we talked about here, you can email us at insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course... You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, 
Satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>